Previously on Funny Science Fiction. You doing hello. that? Now, that's okay. Yeah, we'll fix it in post. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Jeffrey Weissman, and you're watching or listening to the Funny Science Fiction Podcast. Woo-hoo. The podcast that makes you wish time travel was real so you could skip ahead 45 minutes and miss all of our bad jokes. You guys might recognize our guest today uh, from his work in Back to the Future 2, Back to the Future 3. He was George McFly, but not just Back to the Future. That's not the only things that you might recognize him from. Jeffrey Wiseman is our guest today. Hello, Jeffrey. I don't know how you're going to recognize me. I wore a lot of makeup in those films. Well, this is true. This is true. Um, But that's not the only thing we want to talk to you about today. You've had quite an extensive career outside of Back to the Future. and uh, I'm a a legend in my own mind. That's right. Well, you've you've uh, you've assembled a nice resume as a as a character actor. You've been all over the place, doing a whole lot of different things. So we're we're anxious to kind of talk to you about those things as well. I have directors say that to me all of the time. They say you're all over the place. Can you just bring it in? That's <laughs> <laughs> so fun. We might be talking about different types of all over the place, but that's fine too. <laughs> so I, I don't want to talk a whole lot about this, but I do have to ask you a little bit about Back to the Future and taking over the role as. George McFly in Back to the Future 2 and 3 and how that all went down because there, I know there was a lot of drama that was kind of surrounding that with with Crispin and his uh and his exit from the role yeah the drama queen I tell you so, <laughs> uh, it uh, was in my opinion very unfortunate I mean it was fortunate for me to to get the work uh, but I I love Crispin in the first film and yeah I had worked with him on a film before he got that film and thought he was a fascinating actor, got his number, tried to stay in touch, was pretty, pretty friendly. And uh, even when I got the call to come in and to interview to be his photo double, uh, I called him up and said, hey, I need work, say a good word for me, if you remember me, Crispin, you know. And uh, didn't hear back from him until, of course, part three came out and he was ready to sue because of the makeup they put me in. Sure. And uh, unfortunately, I didn't know about the, uh, that they didn't have the, permission uh, to use his life mask makeup oh, okay. uh, it was a, a very uncomfortable situation for me and and it was uncomfortable at the beginning of you know we started right off shooting the enchantment under the sea dance and uh you know people were uncomfortable they even referred to me as crispin it was weird um <laughs> and, and yeah. were telling me stories you know how he made trouble on the first f- film you know not hitting his marks or uh, disappearing when they needed him or not letting him, the production cut his hair where he flipped mm-hmm. out once when he fell asleep in the makeup artist's chair and, and, and Ken Chase was trimming his <laughs> hair and, and Crispin flipped. Uh, or, uh, you know, the stories are pretty bizarre. Uh, he and Leah had uh, rehearsed in character and painted together. And one day Crispin brought in this painting that they, they made together and told Zemeckis, you know, we, want this in the McFly home on the wall. And Zemeckis was like, no, I've got, I've got art directors who have already designed, no. And so he blew his top at that. You know, he, Crispin, I, I think is a, actually a very fine uh, uh, yet eccentric artist. Uh, he's right. a, a very creative man, uh, a bit neurotic. Um, <laughs> and, and I think it's really unfortunate because he did such a great job in the first, first film. I was, right. I personally was proud of him because I knew him. Right. And, uh, and then to find out that, in my mind, when I was up for it, I thought they needed George in multiple places at the same time. 
That's why I was being fitted for the makeup effects and the body okay. cast. And, and okay. I figured, uh, you know, it was one of those things. And when I was told in the 11th hour, he, Crispin was not coming back, the, the contract negotiations broke down. Uh, I couldn't fathom how they were going to do the film without him. And then it all went on my shoulders. Mm. <laughs> I was like, mm. right. Mm. And, uh, and they also cut back the role a great deal. They intended to torture Crispin because he couldn't hit his mark. So the two Bobs decided they'd, they'd have his back out from a car that had fallen out, out of the sky while he was playing, George was playing golf. And so he wrenched his back and, and they put him in this ortholev and hang him upside down. So he'd be on these rails and he'd have to hit his marks. <laughs> yeah, so, so I endured that. Um, <laughs> I think I'm still owed some stunt pay. I don't ever, I don't I, think I any stunt pay for that. Uh, I was going to ask you how that impacted your work, but I, that sounds like that had impacted your work quite a bit. Uh, uh, it, was, it was, it was pretty hard. It was pretty hard. Uh, but, but we, I rolled with it and, and uh, you know, the days, one of those weeks in the McFly kitchen and household, there was a 19 hour day, a 21 hour day, a 26 hour long day, often without eight hours turnaround um it was it was pretty grueling and then also uh the makeup full front for young george for 17 year old george didn't really look right profile looked great I'll, I'll bring that up and show you um but the full front didn't so they took footage of crispin from the first film and cut it in with my work okay and when crispin called after part three came out and tried to, you know, get me on his side to see how they mistreated him. And they, they, he said, they used that footage and mixed it with, you know, my work, my work with your work and, and we're only going to pay me scale. And I was like, that, that doesn't sound quite right for a film that was the highest grossing film of 1985. The first one, right. you know, right. you know they, I think they're up to a billion dollars now. Literally. Or something. Yeah. It's cause it's up there for sure. And, you know, sure. Maybe you, don't get along with the guy, but don't treat him like dirt. You know, it was, it was, it was pretty upsetting. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, needless to say, he sued everyone and, and uh, eventually they, they settled out of court, I think before they even went to court for three quarters of a million dollars. Okay. Uh, but Crispin's still upset and Bob Gale is still at him and I'm still caught in the middle of this saying, Go on, let's all just just hold hands and do something for Michael's charity. Come on, right? Man. Thirty right. years ago. <laughs> can we can we sing a little kumbaya here? Yeah, it is over thirty years now. And I, I for the uh, last big anniversary, twenty fifteen, I put together, as I mentioned just before we we went on the air, uh, a band, a Back to the Future cast member band called Mr. Fusion. That uh, Don Full loves my bass player, and I play guitar. Harry Waters Jr. is our, our lead singer and, and Mark McClure, who played Dave McFly, is our drummer. And we uh, put, got it together mainly for a cruise called the, the Back to the Future Cruise to End Parkinson's. And we had about 50 fans come and join us. I didn't have a lot of knowledge how to produce a cruise at that, at that venture. I know a lot now. <laughs> but uh, but we, we ended up raising a little over $10,000 from Michael's charity. So I feel oh, good. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah you that's guys awesome. play uh, Johnny B. Good? We sure did. And there you go. <laughs> you almost have to, don't you? I, yeah, we had you know five or six songs in our set, and uh, those fans had a great time at our Enchantment Under the Sea dance on board. And I had uh, Dean Cundy, our 
the cinematographer of all three films on board, as well as uh, Kevin Pike and Andrew Probert, who were on the Time Machine DeLorean special effects or design teams. Oh, that's and, cool. Yeah. Awesome. And then, we, and then we piped some people in. Francis Lee McCain, who played uh, Stella Baines, Lorraine's mom, mm -hmm. she at the last minute couldn't come on the cruise, so we actually got her on video uh, and did a nice interview there. And we had a lot of uh, really fun, fun events during the cruise. Hopefully, oh, cool. So yeah. one more, one more question for you about uh, your time as George. And actually, you, you kind of touched on it real quick about the prosthetics. How long were you in the chair each day to become George? Because, you know, dead on, you got you guys are not, you know, twins. So, uh, you know, I mean, they're, 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 you know, with the prosthetics and all, how much time did you spend each day to become George McFly? Uh, at first, it was a little over four hours a day. Um, and then uh, we got it down to maybe three and a half hours. Uh, I uh, usually, if I needed to be on the set by nine in the morning, I'd have to be in the makeup chair by four thirty a.m. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. and oh. then hour at the end of the day to um, you know to take it off. So here's that that uh, this is a Polaroid uh, of the profile of the young George makeup. Is that sharing on the screen okay? Yeah, yeah. that's great. Wow. So that's you in makeup right there. Yeah. Wow. Did nice. you think it was Crispin? I did, actually. That's why they didn't want Crispin to see my pictures. <laughs> <laughs> it was odd. No, I had, and Bob Gale uh, even says, no, that never happened. And here I'm in a body cast ready to do the and this was cut from the film when old George spun actually spins upright for pizza in 2015. And while we're waiting to do that effect, I'm in the body cast and Spielberg came over and said, so Crispin, I see you got your million dollars after all. And <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I'm saving them some money, aren't I? And it was <laughs> so more of a little silly question here. I love how you did George McFly in the Back to the Future. And if you could play that character in any other universe, which universe would that be? Oh, any other? Well, I, yeah, I'd like the way you introduced with the the red shirts going back to the. You know, I I don't want. I'm glad wearing. I'm wearing blue. Uh, <laughs> I'm a huge Star Trek fan, but I don't know if George would fit in there. Uh, George would probably fit in. Oh gosh, with something more intellectual and yet science fictiony. Oh gosh. Goodwill hunting. No, uh, <laughs> George probably be in in clerks. No, I, I'm. <laughs> get back to you on. Let me meditate on it, and I would think on where George should be. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so, unlike other hosts, Tim, I Rude. personally love musical theater. Love musical theater. So I found out that you had played Igor in Young Frankenstein the Musical, which I didn't even know existed. Yes. And uh, yes, uh, Mel made it into a musical, which is just delightful. And uh, ironically, when I was uh, 14 years old, I had heard that Mel was shooting a movie in my neighborhood in Santa Monica in California. And I walked home instead of taking the bus home and, and going through the promenade, I started seeing uh, extras, I guess, in, in uh, 
Victorian evening wear. I was like, oh, we must be around here somewhere. And, and there was a, a, a tall, large gentleman whose mustache was flapping. I said, excuse me, sir, your mustache is coming. He said, oh, is it? Who, who are you? I said, oh, I'm an actor. He says, really? What have you done? And I said, well, I was in Dr. Moon. <laughs> you know, my, my junior high and high school credits, I started listening in community theater. And he says, really? You want to meet Mel? I was like, oh, yeah. Yes. So he takes me under wing and we go to the Mayfair Music Hall where we're shooting the putting on the Ritz number. Oh my goodness. And, uh, <laughs> nice. The first person I meet is Marty Feldman. And he's in his street clothes and he's wearing a man bag, which I wear now. Uh, not his, but I have my own. And, <laughs> and I was just so, I thought, oh, that is so cool. I've never seen a man here in 1973, I guess it was, wearing a man bag, a Merce. And I thought that was cool. And then I saw Peter Boyle and the, the creature makeup. And, and then uh, Roy, this, this uh, extra, took me in and said, hey, we're going to meet Mel. And, and uh, so we find Mel. And, and Roy says, Mel, you got to meet this kid. He's got credits. And it's, I got no time for kids. Oh. <laughs> so it was my first meet, time meeting Mel Brooks. And I've, I've met Mel over the years a few times. My Marx Brothers team auditioned for Men in Tights. And then I met Mel again with Anne and Dom DeLuise, who was a good friend uh, at the Silent Movie House. And, and always had a great time. A very naturally funny man. And, and, and Bancroft was just delightful. Anyway, so coming full circle... Uh, I was offered the role of Igor in a production uh, in uh, Sonoma County up here in north of San Francisco where I live. And it kind of felt like, wow, I can now do tr tribute to uh, Marty, who I, I just adored in that role. Yeah. And if, have you ever seen the outtakes? Yes. Uh, they're just Price. <laughs> how, how he came up with biting the head off a fox up Madeline Kahn's shoulders and anyway so uh I worked my tail off the the musical numbers are wonderful in that piece I, I got to sing the Transylvania mania and uh tap dance which I hadn't tap danced since I was at the American Theater <laughs> in 81 yeah. uh and uh yeah I think I was in about nine or ten numbers uh, oh, nice. and, and doing comedy so what is it between performing live and performing for the screen? Which do you prefer and why? I, 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 everyone asks me that and I have the <laughs> same answer. I, I don't have a preference necessarily. I love the craft and teamwork of making movies and television mm -hmm. shows. And, and I love being in the audience, watching what we did together as a group affect the audience or affect me well you know it's i'm like oh wow i'm crying and i'm doing that you know or, or i'm laughing <laughs> and I, I i created that little comedy moment uh where although the instant gratification in live theater is also pretty incomparable it is uh, i i've spent many years doing improv also in uh los angeles i was part of the varsity first players at uh, la theater sports out of those ranks came most of the players from Whose Line Is It Anyway? Okay. Uh, mm. And, you know, I, Brad Sherwood and Greg Proops and Michael McShane and, and Wayne Brady, we're, we all played together. And the instant gratification for, first of all, trusting your teammates that you're going to get saved if you're, when you're stepping over the cliff into the abyss of the unknown and trying to tell a story and keep it on track without gagging and being... <laughs> You know, it's, it's a really hard, hard muscle to develop and, and flex. And when it's working, 
it's like an out-of-body experience. It's really fantastic. And you just go with it and do your craft the way you know that you are to do it right for it not to fail. And even when it fails, though, you embrace it and the audience is still there with you. So there's nothing quite like that. And then with uh, scripted plays, theater, theater uh, when everything goes well, then you've been rehearsing for five weeks or however three weeks and 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 you've made the choices that are the best choices and and it all comes together and the chemistry is there and the audience is with you there's nothing better uh so uh, to answer your question i like them both i understand that i haven't (laughs) performed in a musical since i was in high school but it was so much fun and you do get that that audience that immediate audience feedback and that is one of the best things about performing live. I love that feeling. It is really very special. And, and I, I know musical junkies. I mean, people who have to do it. They, they know they can't make a living at it, but they still are compelled to do it. Mm-hmm. I have a dear friend, in fact, the gen- gentleman who played uh, Dr. Frankenstein in my production, he's always doing a musical, always doing some theater. He can't stop it. And he has a completely different life day job because he can't make a living doing the theater. Right. But he loves sounds, it. Sounds like podcasting. It, it is very similar. <laughs> I'm, it I'm is very my, similar. I'm getting my Yeti microphone. I'm going to be probably starting my own. I don't know. There you go. Might as well. Yeah. Yeah. So well, the cool we, kids are doing. Well, hey, well, we're trying to be cool. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, sometimes, uh, Jeff, when we talk to people who have had such distinguished careers as your own and and with all the different roles that you've been a part of um distinguished career there's nothing going on (laughs) well it's a kind of extinguished for everybody right now so um but we're sure that you have many memories that stand out over that that the time of your career if you don't mind what's one story that jumps out of your memory banks that you could share with our listeners one story from from which project Whatever your your choice, dealer's choice. Can you go down. Can you go down the resume or something and say, "Bing," you know, with your eyes closed? <laughs> and because I got a story for every project, and generally a dozen stories for most of them. Okay, uh, let's say. How about uh, Pale Rider? You got any stories from Pale Rider? Oh yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, I had a very um, aggressive agent who pursued me, and a, a couple of years before Pale Rider, I was studying at the American Conservatory Theater and, and San Francisco State University and fell into an opportunity to screen test for the lead in a film called The Genius that Martin Brest was the director of. And okay. during the uh, process, I got picked out of 500 guys to get a screen test. And uh, the, the film went into turnaround and it got back on track and I had my screen test. Meanwhile, the name changed to War Games. And I tested with Ali Sheedy and this agent, when she learned from Martin Bress, the original director, that I was his favorite for the role, she pursued me. She had opened her own boutique agency in Beverly Hills out of New York, uh, William Morris, where she came. And I signed with her and she was very aggressive. She opened a lot of doors for me. Uh, I was a bit of a hot item for a year or so there. And Matthew kept beating me out of roles. He, he beat me, of course, and Dana Carvey and Eric Stoltz and various other guys who tested for war games. Uh, then a year later, uh, it was apparently between me and him for Lady Hawk. And, okay. and I had done uh, 
renaissance fairs and so on. So I was ready to rock and roll my medieval. And <laughs> I don't even think I went that way. I still haven't seen that film. I just saw War Games last year for the first time. I, I thought he did a good job. Anyway, I digress. So this agent uh, used to call around the studios. Uh, and uh, one day she called Warner Brothers and said, what do you got going on that we don't know about that's not in the breakdowns? And they said, well, we got something in a Clint Eastwood film that uh, I think we've got the talent in our files. We'll find the, the, the talent. And she goes, well, describe it. And maybe I've got someone. And so the description she thought I fit. And what had turned out, uh, Sean Penn's brother, Chris Penn, who was a marvelous actor, had met Clint at a party in Malibu and said, I want to do, I want to do a film with you. And Clint sent Chris the Pale Rider script and Chris threw it back at Clint because Clint was offering him the role of Eddie Conway, this nice guy, gold panner. And, uh, and Chris said, I want to play a bad guy. And so Clint took Chris uh, to his word and, and cast him as LaHood's son, the bad guy who attempts rape, raping Sidney Penny's character in the film. And so the actor who was cast as Teddy Conway moved into Eddie and Teddy became open. So I got the call from my agent with you're going in on this. And I found that I needed to cry on cue. So I didn't want to leave anything to chance. I want to co-star with Clint Eastwood in the film. And uh, <laughs> I, I knew I had my fantasy charging uh, Meisner technique. I had my subjective personalization technique, which is a little Strasbourgian emotional recall. I had my... Uh, just Zen technique of going with it if it's well written. I even had a lock of my grandmother's hair in my pocket, who was really the only one in my family who really encouraged me to do my acting. My parents did not want me to be an actor. They uh, anyway. So uh, I knew that uh, I needed to cry on cue, and the producer put me on on tape for Clint, and I was able to cry no problem, keeping the lines coming and keeping the action real, and and sure enough. You know, that was on a Friday. On Monday, I was on my way to uh, the location in Idaho to shoot the film. Nice. So that's one story. I mean, I've got tons of stories. You know, we had Michael Moriarty quit the film. Carrie Snodgrass wanted to quit the film. There are a lot of good stories. Uh, the reasons are uh, actually Michael got three fingers broken by the Cowboys when he went to town. Oh, man. Time, uh, they were messing around and didn't stick to the fight choreography. And he was trying to compose the symphony. So it took Clint a few days to get Michael back. Carrie and Michael and Clint all butted heads because she's a really strong actress with, with very clear ideas of how her character was. And they butted heads over that. And I'd, I'd calm her down. We had mutual friends. So Carrie and I, wonderful, wonderful, God rest her. Uh, Carrie Snodgrass had such great talent. And I'd calm her down and we kept her on the shoot and everything went well. <laughs> Strawberry daiquiris help. Oh, I bet. Strawberry daiquiris help most things. Paul <laughs> can be your friend. Yeah, we uh, we got snowed in. Blizzard snowed us in during uh, shooting Pell Rider. The uh, cast being uh, holed up for three days on per diem got pretty crazy. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure. And I remember I was having lunch with Clint in a blizzard shortly after we got there. Uh, he fired the caterers and we're on a location on the top of a mountain and the new caterer, I guess to impress Clint and everyone served steak and lobster the first day for lunch. 
And here I'm having a steak and lobster with Clint in the middle of a blizzard. <laughs> like, this, is, this is so surreal. It's nice weather, Clint. And he goes, ah, I didn't expect it to be snowing in October. Yeah. Anyway, uh, lots of fun, fun stories. There are more, so have me back. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so there are many, I'm going to call them nerdiverses out there. What are some of your favorite like Hollywood universes that have come to life? Oh my. There are uh, so many. <laughs> I, I'm really a, a easy kind of going guy for entertainment. I love being entertained. I love the Guardians of the Galaxy and I love uh, the Star Wars, of course. And uh, I've made a lot of friends with the ILM uh, crew members from the model shops to the effects people to uh, uh, camera cinematographers and such. Uh, so I'm, I'm very always excited about uh, those universes, you know, both uh, the sci-fi, you know, just, I remember when I was 11 years old, I accidentally kicked sand on this guy on the beach and, and when he sat up and lowered his glasses and said, yeah, I, excuse me, it was Leonard Nimoy. And I, I flipped. Oh. I ran <laughs> home to tell my parents I kicked sand on Leonard Nimoy, on Spock. Um, and then about I guess five years ago, uh, seven years ago, I was a guest at the London Film and Comic Con and James Tolkien, who played Principal Strickland and I were having a break in the green room and the Star Trek name was Leonard Nimoy. Leonard walked in and he spotted James and came right to our table and sat down and chatted with us for a better part of an hour because uh, Leonard and James had worked on a play uh, directed by Otto Preminger oh, neat. in the early 70s. And so, uh, and they reminisced how Otto, Otto uh, whatever cast he was directing, whether film, television, or, or live, he'd pick a whipping boy or girl. And he picked Leonard Nimoy, which was a big mistake. Leonard wouldn't stand for it. He got up and walked out. And, and so I'm, I'm like in heaven listening to James Tolkien and Leonard Nimoy do their impressions of Otto Preminger. Show <laughs> an accent and you're not going to do this. Anyway, I can't even do and, and then I, I finally got to apologize to Leonard Nimoy for kicking sand on him and 1969 <laughs> or 68. <whatever>. <laughs> <laughs> did he remember having Sam was, kicked on him? <laughs> oh, he didn't remember. <laughs> uh, well, see, clearly he didn't kick enough. So, <laughs> but he, he was kind enough to autograph a picture to me. So, uh, oh, oh, that's fantastic. So cool. God bless. That'd him. be so cool. So, in researching your roles, because you have an extensive, extensive history that you were in Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and I Want to Hold Your Hand when you were 20? Uh, younger. Yeah, I was, I was just out of high school. My parents could no longer tell me I couldn't be an actor. <laughs> <laughs> I, I signed up to be, you know, background and I Want to Hold Your Hand was one of the first ones I was in, uh, Zemeckis directing, but he, he couldn't do, we were in these big crowd scenes. I was a Ringo fan outside the Beatles hotel <laughs> that uh, Wendy Joe and, and Eddie Dizanel company are trying to break in. And uh, it was about a hundred and some odd degrees in the Burbank back lot. And we're wrapped up as if it's New York in January and the extras are dropping like flies. And Zemeckis, I don't know if he had confidence directing 
large group. So he brought in a friend of his to direct this. So uh, I guess it was my first time being directed by Spielberg. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Okay. So going yeah. into this, were you already a Beatles fan? And oh, then, did, oh, I mean, God. you were a teenager and they were the Beatles. So it kind of makes sense. Well, I, I uh, growing up with an older brother and sister who had to get the newest Beatles releases as soon as they came out, you know, or stay up late to watch them on the Ed Sullivan show. I remember all that stuff. And, and uh, yeah, I was a big fan. And then uh, on Sergeant Peppers, which was uh, really odd, I'm actually in four different scenes in that. Hmm. Uh, I, I played Strawberry Field's brother when the band is going off in the hot air balloon. I'm in a, the Earth, Wind and Fire Can't you Gotta Get You Into My Life crowd scene. Uh, and then uh, I'm, of course, uh, one of those boys, Boy Scouts being brainwashed by Alice Cooper. Steve Martin turns the anyway. So I'm I'm uh, kind of I think I, it took us three days to shoot that scene with Alice, the uh, Sun King bit that he does, and he's on video for the first two days. And there's dancers on either side, and we're doing some dance moves. And I remember this very lovely uh, blonde-haired dancer. I'm actually kind of getting a crush on, and and I. Uh, make friends with her and on the third day I, I go up to her and we finally have Alice live and that morning I go up and that's Cheryl how are you go, she goes Jeffrey oh I want you to meet my, my husband Alice ah. oh nice to meet you <laughs> I remember also the first day of shooting on that uh, it was 7.30 in the morning or something I smelled pot I, I don't you know it's legal here in California so hopefully I can talk about it on your show but you're like I follow my nose I'm 18 years old I'm following you know 18 years old, I smell pot I follow my nose to Barry Gibb I'm like you're smoking pot this early in the morning he goes well yeah you want some goes, of course I'm 18 yeah there's tobacco in that ah! <laughs> that's how we smoke it and then Robin comes over and says look we just we just got number one on the billboard charts with the uh, uh, news of the world children of the world whatever that album was I was the first to congratulate them. Awesome. So How cool. cool is that? That's an awesome story. Funny Science Fiction will be right back after a word from our sponsors. With over 700 designs to choose from, River City Tees has something for everyone. Need some new nerd merch? River City Tees has you covered. Need funny or sarcastic designs? River City Tees has you covered. Are you looking for a new logo or custom design? Whether you need one or 100, River City Tees has you covered. With multiple colors and options for each and every design. With things to choose from like shirts, hoodies, phone cases, coffee mugs, and so much more. Be sure to follow River City Tees on Facebook and Instagram. If you do, you'll get the latest on designs and information about upcoming sales. River City Tees. Let's make a shirt together. And now back to funny science fiction. So cool. All right. So now for many people, uh, they say that the art of teaching is something that speaks to their soul and they feel inclined to share what they know with others. Now on your bio on IMDb, it told us that you teach the art of improvisation, developing characters on stage for television and film acting. So what was it about teaching that made you want to be a teacher of acting? Well, first of all, uh, out of necessity for a paycheck. But fair enough. <laughs> more importantly, <laughs> I, it's, it's thrilling for me to 
learn as the students learn. And, and I've been through so many different uh, kind of wanting to test, you know, dip my foot in the water of different techniques. And I've found many techniques that, that work for me and, and many that didn't and others that I, I felt were being taught as a cookie cutter, one size fits all. And I, I have an approach where I believe that, you know, you, Tim and, and you, Nick, and, and you, Kathleen, are not wired the same. And, and your life right. experiences uh, may feed in. Some you may have blocked off if we're trying to do, uh, say, a Strasbourgian emotional recall, Stanislavski-based technique, or if we're doing a fantasy charging up might work better for you because you can't do the personalization or sense memory because it's too traumatic. Or, you know, th there are many different ways of getting the same results. A lot of directors will be result-oriented and not know how to speak in actor terms. So I teach directors how to speak in actor terms. I speak and teach to actors how to direct themselves in case a director says, I need you to cry here, but doesn't give you the conditions to get there. Okay. And an actor needs to know that stuff. And I've seen, I've helped a lot of actors uh, kickstart their craft and then take it on. I have mentored actors who are working in, in Hollywood now or continuing whatever local theater that they want to take their careers to, whatever they're, they're doing. So uh, for me, it's, it's uh, exciting to know that if someone I've mentored or nurtured uh, becomes successful or uh, others that I know have become uh, members of a team and have moved on from acting and are producing or, or writing. Uh, you know, so it's, it's kind of a win-win because I uh, very rarely get bad feedback on my, my instruction. Cool. So you get cool. the paycheck and, and you get the, the joy of helping somebody else, you know, reach for their dream. As soon as I'm vaccinated. There you go. <laughs> Definitely. There you go. Well, I finally figured out how to do Zoom teaching where I can now say, have people do their monologues or maybe if they're with other people do a scene, record it like we're recording here and then stop it and come back on and play it in another window and then break it down for them. Mm. It took a while to figure that out. All right, cool. There has been quite the learning curve the last year with Zoom. I understand. I, I had my, my kind of artistic life was saved by a group out of London called The Show Must Go Online. I've done two shows with them. One, I played Doc Brown in a, uh, a Get Thee Back to the Future as if Back <laughs> to the Future was written by Shakespeare. Oh, cool. So I'm a Shakespearean. Oh, nice. We shot it here. I did the slide from the clock tower across the screen here. My wife was the camera operator. So I'm climbing on the floor, which I'm actually, so it looks like I'm actually climbing up the, the building to the clock tower. <laughs> anyway, uh, she was my, uh, my wardrobe mistress, my uh, prop master. Anyway, uh, and then I played Sir Toby Belch in Twelfth Night. What they did was the entire Shakespearean canon over the course of the summer during the pandemic. And it was fantastic for me to, to work on that. It felt like I was being creative and they learned how to pass props through the camera. So if one of you oh, grab, cool. grab, you know, or, or do fights through the camera or uh, how to really work. Oh, that's cool. There you go. <laughs> Changed you, Nick, 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 pa pass it back, Nick. Yeah, thank you. 
See, uh, and, and now I've done uh, an improv show, in fact, just recently with Binge Watch is the name of the company. And uh, it was really great. We did some passing through the, the, the lens, even, even kissing, you know, it was no tongue. <laughs> <laughs> necessity uh, also a lot of things for the fans i've had uh argentina argentina uh france japan italy uh, uh, doing uh zooms for the fans and a lot of them are fundraisers fundraisers hello fundraisers for parkinson's there you go. awesome so There's what was fundraisers the, too what was the name of the of the uh the play again and the shakespearean style one yeah, you can find them on YouTube. The The show must go online, T-S-M-G-O for short. And they did all of Shakespeare's canon in, what was it, 36 weeks or something. Okay. And you can see me in Twelfth Night and, and get the Back to the Future. Ian Drescher uh, adapted Back to the Future as if Shakespeare had written it. He also did uh, Star Wars and Mean Girls in the same fashion. <laughs> Mean Girls at Shakespeare sounds fantastic. They, they are quite exceptional. And oh then, my gosh. Uh, the show must go online uses actors' talent from around the world can be in the productions. Uh, so I had you know, actors from around the world I'm working with and uh, really remarkable breakthroughs in casting. There's uh, some example there, Macbeth, is almost all female or non-binary. Wow. And, okay. Uh, and and it brought new meanings to the relationships in the in the play that I'd never seen before. It was just dynamically wonderful. Uh, their Hamlet was a female Hamlet. You know, they really uh, great work. And I'm working with actors who are trained either at the National Theater or the Royal Academy. You know, it's it, for me it was very exciting. Yeah, I bet. Awesome. And some are even laymen. Some are even non-actors that they would uh, even uh, bring in who did fine jobs. That's so cool. So also in looking through your IMDb, I was surprised how many TV shows that you had been in that I'm like, oh, wait, right. I know that. I've seen him in that, including Saved by the Bell, Diagnosis Murder, which I actually just bought on DVD and it's going to be delivered like next week. I'm so excited. I'm oh, boy. such a Diagnosis yeah. Murder nerd. Very sad to see uh, the passing of Dustin Diamond, but I played... Uh, Screech's guru, the high geek. Yes. Mm -hmm. In the rockumentary yeah. episode. And, uh, and then we put together in another film later on, an indie called the um, our feature presentation. So if you could have picked any of those smaller roles to become part of a bigger narrative, which one? Uh, of those television roles? Yeah. I thought... I was going to be a reoccurring regular on that Scarecrow and Mrs. King episode where I played Scotty the valet Parker at the Scarecrow's headquarters. Mm -hmm. And he was an amateur filmmaker. And it seemed to me like it was a pretty poss good possibility. That episode, in fact, was the second highest rated episode of that first season of Scarecrow. Uh, the highest one was when they finally kissed. <laughs> um, and, uh, and it didn't pan out. I had been also cast as a regular in another series called Legman, and they kept pushing my character. And by the time I was to go work, the series got canceled. So mm. oh, geez. those sometimes, you know, they get, it would have been nice to be a recurring on Saved by the Bell as Screech's guru, I guess. Right, right. Uh, yeah. 
I don't know, it'd be more like Kung Fu with nerd style. <laughs> <laughs> nerds need, nerds need Kung Fu. <laughs> That's right. And I love, you know, I, I was very nerdy growing up. I'm still nerdy as an adult. And I love going to the fan cons. I spend a lot of my time at the fan cons taking pictures of all the cosplay. I have uh, this wonderful video of an eight-year-old kid that built his own Java the Hut outfit. Oh, nice. Cool. Oh, it's just, I'll, I'll send it to you. Um, and and uh, other even pro cosplayers, uh, the, the costumes and you know the skeezics and different um, fabrications they made it just are odd awesome making odd jaw dropping that's what i'm looking for <laughs> i love that stuff cosplay yeah, pretty is cool. pretty cool and i had one fan finally make the uh, George oh, oh that's nice <laughs> I love it. That's cool. awesome. That's awesome. So let's go back to that question from earlier of which universe would George McFly be in? Uh, yes. Which would he be in? Uh, once again, uh, he... <laughs> He was real into the comics as a kid. Uh, so maybe Amazing Tales. All right. Amazing Stories. Didn't Spielberg uh, do a TV series called Amazing Stories? Mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. Maybe George yeah. would fit in there. Uh, I could see George fit in really well in Twilight Zone. Mm. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Crispin would have fit right in. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, George. We share it. Yes, it happens. <laughs> I have to admit that I this is can probably be edited out and post if necessary. I texted my brother, letting him know who we were interviewing today, and he goes, "Oh, did you guys try to get Crispin Glover and couldn't afford him?" Uh. Oh, nice. Right. Nice friend. You're not getting an appearance fee coming? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was right. very as soon as we get paid from our sponsors. Yes. My first uh, co-star role was on uh, George Miller's episode, the remake of Nightmare at 20,000 Feet in the Twilight Zone movie. Mm -hmm. And first of all, I was, I was shocked that they were going to continue shooting that film after the terrible accident. But this three months later, my agent called and got me the interview uh, and found George Miller, who you know directed Road Warrior and Mad Max, uh, coming off those highs, uh, was just a delightful man. And uh, we got along very well. He was just taken in by Hollywood. It was his first Hollywood project. And he had John Lithgow and uh, just a stellar ensemble cast mm -hmm. with uh, Larry Cedar from Deadwood uh, as the gremlin tearing the, the wing apart. Yes. So that was, that was very exciting for me for my first co-star role um, to be on that set. And, and uh I love technology and, and Alan Davio, who just passed away due to COVID a year ago, uh, our cinematographer shared the responsibilities with Garrett Brown, who in, invented the Steadicam. And it was so fantastic to see this 65 pound camera on this guy who's running up and down the aisles of the airplane fuselage, uh, working his tail off, getting these amazing shots. And it was, it was a, a real treat to be on that shoot. 
I'm sure. That'd be cool. So a little bit of your, uh, oh no, what is that word? <laughs> if you don't know, we don't know. The the on the spot acting. Improv. Thank you. I can't believe I forgot the improv word. (laughs) You didn't remember improv on the spot. Okay, good to know. The irony is pretty steep there. You get stuck in the head. You get roadblocked. Yeah. Age helps that. So if (laughs) if animals could talk, which one do you think would be the funniest? Sloths? Sloths. I love them in Zootopia. I love that works for me <laughs> all right jeffrey we've come to a point in our we've come to the point in our show where uh we like to subject our guests to a quiz oh great okay i'm out of here <laughs> But yeah, he, he's gone. But you scared him away, Tim. But if you stick around for the quiz, you could win prizes. You get to win prizes. Oh boy! So we can't pay you scale, but we will. We will send you prizes if you get. So there's going to be five questions. They're all based on you scale. All right. They're all based on Back to the Future Two. Okay. Well, that shouldn't be difficult. I hope not. So, uh, so out of the five questions, if you get three right, we're going to send you one of our red shirt widows and orphans coffee mugs. Nice. If you get four questions right, we're going to send you the coffee mug and also this book, Custodians of the Cosmos, written by Drayton Allen, our page founder. And so the nice thing about the book is that's where the red shirt widows and orphans fund comes from. It's all about a, a man who wants to join Starfleet, can't, so he rejoins as a custodian to boldly clean up after those who boldly just went. So that's that's the premise of the book. So if you get three right, you get the coffee mug. If you get four right, you get the mug in the book. And no red shirt? Well, no, but I, but a red <laughs> mug. Bring so it bring it on. So if you get less, however, if you get less than two or less than three, you only get two right. I owe you. We take your picture and we make a meme out of you. We call it a fun sequence. <laughs> Do you agree to these terms, sir? Can I check with my agent? Sure. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> all right, Nick. Oh, these are all multiple choice, by the way. So great. All right, go ahead, Nick. What is the name of Biff's grandson, Spiff, Cliff, or Griff? Are you kidding? No. Well, he could be Spiffy Griff, um, or he could be uh, Grumpy Spiffy. No, uh, well, okay, Griff. Yeah, it's Griff. Yes, you are correct. (laughs) I've had 30 years to study this. Well, we were kind of banking on that. (laughs) so when doc marty and jennifer land in the alley after reaching hill valley in 2015 Mm. doc tells marty to get out and change his clothes marty comments that it's raining and doc says wait blank more seconds how many seconds did doc tell marty to wait 15 10 or 5 i'm gonna go 
I think it's five. You are correct. Yes, you had it was 30 five. years to study this and also 30 years to forget things, but instant blow dry. <laughs> In Back to the Future 2, why is George McFly hanging upside down? Do you want this the seems like a choice? Soft, this seems like a softball since you've already <laughs> said the answer earlier on. So <laughs> uh, is it an unfortunate back injury? It's the future. Or George just like to be inverted. There isn't a, a all of the above. Oh, um, <laughs> well, I, I I told you the real reason earlier that Crispin couldn't hit his marks, uh, but <laughs> and in the paperback version, the car fell out of the a flying car fell out of the sky, uh, causing George to wrench his back while out on the golf course. So yeah, all right. So unfortunate back injury it is. Fortunate back injury. Ortholove. <laughs> all right. Who was responsible for George McFly's death in the alternate 1985? Biff, George, or Doc Brown? Uh, <clears throat> and and wasn't that on St. Patrick's Day? I don't know. You're the one who was in the movie. Oh, yes, I believe it was. So I, I'm pretty sure that this is a trick question because had Doc not invented the time machine, it probably wouldn't have happened. Correct. But Biff is the one who shot him in the back. But also correct. I don't know that there were any witnesses. I mean, he he says he does it, but I don't know that he did. I <laughs> well. If, uh, Tom's too nice of a guy, really. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, it was uh, Biff Tannen. It was Biff. <laughs> and that earned you the book and the cup. So. Oh, wait. I have one for you guys. Okay. What was the original way Marty returned from 55 to 85? And this is when eric stoltz was still on the film i do not know i don't know either dee, 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 dee. <laughs> i don't nick, have a multiple, i don't have multiple answers to uh nick you're really good with improv <laughs> have something nick no i don't have anything <laughs> uh it was it, kathleen kennedy and frank marshall uh i think used it the con part of the concept later on in an indiana jones film uh Marty gets the DeLorean out to an atomic bomb test site and drives 88 miles an hour underneath the bomb as it's being lowered to get the 1.21 gigawatts. Mm. I remember oh. the, the, the movie at the uh, theater down, down the road uh, from the clock tower is playing the atomic kid. Mm -hmm. I was tying in with that scene. After they fired Eric Stoltz after seven weeks or whatever shooting, uh, Sid Scheinberg had a production, I believe, at Universal came and said, you want to use Michael J. Fox, you got to cut a million dollars off your, your budget. So they cut that whole scene. Oh, wow. And uh, Andrew Probert actually took the scene out of the first film uh, script and storyboarded it and has a beautiful uh, PowerPoint presentation with sound effects and everything that we did on, the, on our uh, cruise, Back to Future Cruise. Cool. That is really cool. That is yeah. amazing. Well, Very sir, you have 
you have earned a book, Custodians of the Cosmos, and we'll make sure that Drayton puts some uh, some writing in the front of it for you. Uh, so we'll get him to autograph it, and then uh, we'll also send you one of these handy dandy mugs as well. We okay. love prizes. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Well, Jeffrey, thank you so much for being on the show today. Where can people go to find out more about your acting work and what you're doing now? Well, if you don't mind, we do have to stay outside, but come on over. All right. <laughs> uh, you, can, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at, at J-E-F-W-E-I-S-S-M-A-N, at Jeff Weissman, 1F, on Instagram at Jeffrey J. Let's see, is it? Yeah. Jeffrey James Weissman, pretty sure that's right, on Instagram. Uh, on uh, the World Wide Web, I have a, a kind of a funky old website. You can write me actually through it, uh, jeffreyweissman.com. And, uh, and if you want, you know, if you're a big Back to the Future fan or have one in your family uh, or friends and you want an autographed picture, I can use the money. Um, just, just write me through... Uh, jeffreyweissman.com and I'll send you samples of what I have available, even some Pizza Hut wrappers. There the you go. That wrapper or, or an action figure. But there not this one. Not, not that, that one. one. <laughs> that, one, that one's pretty cool. Thank you so much, Jeff. I'll make sure that the guys put those in the description so that people can find you and follow your work. Thank you. Now, we want to remind everybody that subscribing is the single most important thing that you can do to ensure that we get more amazing guests like, like Jeffrey Wiseman here, uh, so that you have funny moments to listen to, Thank and, stories. <laughs> <laughs> and so that we have uh, more great stories uh, from guys like Jeff. Uh, we, it really helps. So please subscribe. It's going to do more than you can understand. And also, you want to make sure that you go to Twitter and Instagram, check out Jeff's work, and follow him there. He's got some fun stuff online for you guys. Uh, there. I want to yeah. mention also uh, the beard is being grown uh, to play uh, uh, Simon Wheeler, who tells Mark Twain the story about the jumping frogs in Calaveras County. Oh, nice. Oh. And as soon as I, I film that, I'm shaving the beard and keeping the mustache and turning around and playing Mark Twain. Oh, <laughs> nice. Okay. So I'm, in the I'm same production? Yes. And I'm, I'm developing uh, Mark Twain's American history. As oh, nice. so cool. All right, cool. I uh, also want to remind you guys that if you're not happy with the content of today's video, all you have to do is submit in single form, of course, to our chief complaint officer, George McFly. After consulting with his car wax consultant, Biff Tannen, George will demand that the offending party hang upside down for 15 minutes per complaint in the back brace that he had to use in Back to the Future 2. Yes, and, and uh, remember, if you have a complaint, this is the guy that you're complaining about. <laughs> exactly <laughs> that guy not the bearded fellow you see in front of you uh, well, well thanks, thanks again yes thank <laughs> you very much delightful meeting you all and and i'll see you in the future all right yeah. or in the past <laughs> or in the depending on how it goes yeah <laughs> thanks everybody for watching this has been funny science fiction stay well passionate our show is brought to you by our charity sponsor, the Red Shirt Widows and Orphans Fund, which supports the Wish Upon a Teen Foundation that helps out sick kids when they need it most. And just imagine the comfort you'll give Red Shirt Crewman number 43. He'll know that when he puts on the red shirt to join Marty to his trip to 1955, 18 minutes before the school dance, that he didn't leave his family destitute and without hope. 
because the Red Shirt Widows and Orphans Fund has his back and his tucks. On behalf of the rest of the hosts of Funny Science Fiction, we'd like to thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to be a guest on one of our future episodes, please contact us by means of our Facebook group, Funny Science Fiction. You can find us on Twitter or Instagram using the handle at Funny Sci-Fi, or you can go to DraytonAllen.com and click the contact me link at the bottom of the page. Thanks again. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Copyright 2020 by Drayton Allen. Original music by Jordan Michaels. Reference to any specific product or entity mentioned in this podcast does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation of or by Funny Science Fiction or its sponsors. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. If you have questions about this disclaimer, please contact us via email at DraytonAllen at DraytonAllen.com.